Let's go ahead and begin uh, in a word of prayer. Thank you, God, for your continued faithfulness to us. We rejoice that you are our hideaway. We rejoice that you are our advocate and that we, um, even though we have done nothing deserving of your grace, that we can be recipients of that grace, specifically because of the work of redemption accomplished by Christ on the cross. So may we rejoice in that and worship you because of that. Help us to draw strength from you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The human mind thrives on past victories. Um, We oftentimes find ourselves trying to encourage ourselves in victories of the past. You may think of this in a very small way, the child who is struggling to learn how to ride a bicycle for the first time uh, may remember, wait a second ago, yesterday I was able to stay up for 30 seconds, right? And there's kind of a a drawing from those reserves and to say, wait, I, I, I can do that again. The Apollo missions likewise could find increasing encouragement with each successful mission, Wow, we can go to space. Wow, we can go around the moon. Wow, and we can continue to find um, help from previous victory. One might be able to also look at past military successes as a way to draw strength and encouragement for present battles. We won that battle, okay? We can win this battle. And we continue to look back and what has been accomplished in the past. In the same way, as Christians, we are called to do this very same thing, uh, and we see the encouragement to do this specifically in a word that's repeated throughout Scripture, and that is the word remember. Remember what happened. Remember what the Lord has done for you. Draw strength from that well. When I was in college, one of our professors encouraged us to have what he called a works of God journal. And basically, you would take a journal, and every time you would see the Lord's providence and grace working in your life, you would just write this particular thing down. And then when you were struggling through discouragement or perhaps going through the furnace of affliction, you would go back to this journal and draw strength from those reserves, draw strength from that that deep well of, look at all that the Lord has done in my life in the past. And this is exactly what I would suggest to us John is doing in 1 John 2. We're going to be in 12 through 14. John is providing a well for us that you want to tell all of your problems and your sins to. You ever find someone in your life like that? They're firm enough to not let you off the hook, and yet they're gentle enough to say, I I understand the struggle that you're going through and I understand why you would respond that way. But let me show you what scripture says. And you find someone in your life like that and just cling on to that person. Uh, And John is kind of, I think, that way a little bit. You know, you sit down with him for a few minutes and he just fixes his gaze on you and you just kind of like just start confessing. (laughs) I just have to confess all what's going on here. This is the way that he writes. He always 
addresses his readers as little children. He has this kind of fatherly tone in his writing. And he gives you some very hard truths, and he rebukes us. And through these truths that he gives to us, we're wounded, and yet he brings the gospel to bandage our wounds, and he does this repeatedly. Last week, we saw in 1 John 2, verses 7 through 11, a rather frightening scene. And that scene was this. We saw the possibility that people could be deceived about their own salvation. We saw the possibility that people could be false converts. In other words, someone might think that they are a Christian but they're actually blinded, a liar, and they are still lost. And at some point in last week's passage, you should have asked yourself this straightforward question. Am I truly a believer in Christ? Am am I in Christ? Or am I lost? 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5 exhorts us in this way, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And so we understand that we are called, according to 2 Corinthians, according to the book of 1 John, we are called that to, to evaluate ourselves, to ask the question, am I really in the faith? Am I a Christian? And there are certain tests and certain things that Scripture gives to us to evaluate by. But due to the effects of the fall and due to the effect of remaining sin in us, it does happen that true believers, genuine believers in Christ, will sometimes unnecessarily doubt their own salvation. I've sat under preachers who could make the Apostle Paul doubt his own salvation. And we need to understand and be compassionate to individuals, recognizing that there are some people who are constantly plagued by a lack of assurance of their faith. And every little verse in Scripture, wait, maybe that's me. Maybe I'm among the lost. Maybe I'm not really a believer in Christ. Today's passage anticipates this. Because John has been saying over and over and over again... (laughs) True believers are going to be like that. True believers, false converts. And so he anticipates and understands this impulse. And John recognizes that it could be possible that some true believers will read this letter and they might be unnecessarily plagued by doubts and a lack of assurance. And so he runs to the very thing which will ease our doubts and which will comfort us, and that is some of the core truths of the gospel message itself. He does this by going back in time and saying, essentially, 
Look at what the Lord has done in your life. Take heart in that work and find strength in that. Draw strength from this well, this reserve of past grace. Look at how far you have come. If you have come this far with the Lord's help, then you certainly will finish the race. Why? Because finishing the race is not your work. It is Christ's work. Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. All true believers will persevere to the end. There's no exceptions to that. There's no some true believers will. There's no if you can hold yourself up long enough. And if you can keep your head above water long enough then you will persevere in your own strength. We trust that we will persevere because the author of our faith is Christ. It rests in that. We are not holding on to him. He is holding on to us. There's a big difference in that. And so what John is doing is he's saying, look into the past And I want you to see all of the instances where Christ was holding you up. You think he's going to let go of you now? Look at all of the grace that he's given to you. Past success, past obedience, past grace is evidence of not my perseverance, but Christ's. And if Christ was at work then, he is at work now. And so I want to summarize these verses today with a statement that I will repeat several times today. And that is simply this. Draw strength from the work of grace that the Lord has already accomplished in your life. Look at what the Lord has done and draw strength from that knowing that he's faithful. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, as we begin here, I want to start just on a very brief technical note and just inform you that there are actually several different views on how we should understand this passage. John says that he is writing to little children. He says that he is writing to young men, and he says he's writing to fathers, okay? Now, the first question is this. How many different groups is he referring to? And you would think, well, he mentioned three. Some say three. Some say only one group, and he's kind of referring to them in different senses. 
Uh, and some would actually say two groups, that he, when he uses the, word, the phrase little children, he's actually talking about everyone, since he uses that term over and over and over again throughout the letter. And then under that umbrella term of little children is young men and fathers. And then there's also the question of whether the age groups that he refers to is literal or not. Is he actually talking to little children age-wise? Is he talking to young men age-wise? Is he talking to fathers age-wise? Or is he talking about them in terms of their spiritual maturity? I'm writing to you children in the faith, you know, young new converts. I'm writing to you young men who've had a seasoned uh, past. I'm writing to you fathers who've walked with the Lord for many years. Um, I'll just say here that I'm inclined to believe that he's referring to three different groups, and he's speaking of their spiritual maturity, spiritual children, young men, and fathers. Um, but I, I, w- I would say that I don't, I don't know that there's a, a significant difference in terms of the effect of this, because in any event, he's encouraging us to do the same thing. God has done a work of grace in your life in the past. Draw strength from that for grace today. This is, I would suggest, the theme of the passage today. Let's look at verse 12 here as, at, the, at the beginning here. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I don't know if you ever had the opportunity to, to witness someone who has been in an accident or someone who has, um, is in shock or someone who has just gone through a very traumatic thing and they're still in the moment that adrenaline has coursed through their body. Maybe you come up to someone on the road. They've just been in an accident on the highway. And they're, they're, they're perfectly well. Their body, they, they were in the accident, but maybe they had a couple scratches on their face. And there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with them. Physically, they're fine. But going through that near-death experience, uh, they're in shock now, and they're shaking maybe a little bit, and they're stumbling around. Here, let, let's get you seated. Can you tell me what happened? I, I was on, and, and we, and then in the car, and we, and like what? And they're just kind of in this moment of I don't know what's going on. It's okay. Calm down. Relax. Take it easy. In that moment, you are giving them simple, basic truths. You don't you don't get too technical in that moment. You don't try to um, ask too many questions. You don't try. You just focus. Okay, look at me. You're alive. You're okay. There's barely a scratch on, on your body. The Lord has preserved you through that. You're just taking and you're getting the bare minimum that you can give to just encourage them a little bit to get through that next minute, to get through that next 90 seconds, to get through the next five minutes, okay? And then you can begin to, to add on to that later. You know, you survived the accident. I'm, just, I'm here to help you. You're going to be okay. That is what verse 12 is. 
because in the previous section from what we saw last week, he told us some pretty difficult and troubling truths. He said, if you hate your brother, you're not a Christian. Now, what John is interested in doing in this book, in this letter, is he is very, very interested in taking false assurance away from unbelievers. If you are an unbeliever, I don't want you to have any assurance of your salvation. (laughs) Because a false assurance is going to lead you to just do nothing. I want you to be shaken up a little bit. But there's also the person who has gone through, who is, who's read this passage, and now the true believer is doubting their salvation. Wait a second. <laughs> and so what John is doing here is he anticipates flying shrapnel and recognizing that this could also have the effect of robbing true converts of their assurance. Okay? Simple, simply put, if you are an unbeliever, I don't want you to have any assurance of your salvation because you don't have it. If you are a believer, I want you to have tons of assurance of your salvation. Okay? And this is the nature of this letter is that he's trying to rob the false uh, false assurance from unbelievers. But then he's going back and he's, he's, he's recognizing that there's some true believers here who are shaking and they're in shock right now. And he just says, it's going to be okay. Little children, your sins are forgiven. Just look at me in the eyes, okay? Let me hold your head. Your sins are forgiven. You understand this? And he just gives them a very simple, basic gospel truth to kind of bring them back And he comforts the believer in Christ. He comforts the believer in Christ by saying, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. He's strengthening their assurance. He's building this up. And we need this comfort as well. I mean, we need this like every single day. Little children, little child, your sins are forgiven. That weight weight is gone. The, the, The weight is no longer there. My burden is gone. It's off of my back. If you are in Christ, then you can be comforted by the reality that your sins are forgiven. And he just puts one little statement in here to strengthen this so that we can be even more sure that our sins are forgiven. And he simply says, your sins are forgiven. And then what does he say? For his name's sake. Okay? If the first part wasn't enough, this second part seals the deal. Okay, I have no doubt now about this. There are actually lots of passages in Scripture where um, the, the, this is appealed to. The Lord does something for the sake of his name. 
Psalm 2511 is uh, another verse, and this one actually links this reality with forgiveness as well, just like 1 John does. You may want to write Psalm 2511 in the margin next to 1 John 2 and verse 12. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Something is going on here. Forgiveness of sins for his name's sake. Why do these go together? How do these fit together? It's important to observe that the pardon that we receive, the forgiveness that we receive as believers flows out of the fountainhead of something. It's coming from somewhere, okay? Forgiveness is not created in a vacuum. It actually flows out of the fountainhead of something else. And here's the fountainhead that it flows out of. The pardon that you receive flows out of God's commitment to his own glory. First comes the commitment to God's glory. Then comes the forgiveness. If God is going to forgive sinners, which he does... then the way that it must be accomplished will never be accomplished by robbing him of glory. If forgiveness is possible, it will only happen through funneling glory to him and increasing his reputation for the sake of his name. And so he connects these two things together. Now, this raises an important question, and that question is this. How does forgiving sinners honor God's name? How does forgiving sinners vindicate his name? How does forgiving sinners increase glory, ascribed glory to God? Because our first impulse is, if we know our Bibles well, is to to look to God's justice and to wonder whether or not forgiving sinners actually dishonors his name. I mean, if, if if we know anything about God's justice, if we know anything about God's holiness, we know that he is not the kind of God who will overlook sin. And however forgiveness is accomplished, if it's even possible, and it is, however it's accomplished, it will not happen through diminishing his glory or overlooking his justice or bypassing his holiness. Okay? Can't, can't happen that way. And so we would be inclined to think that If God is working for the purpose of increasing the fame of his own name, of increasing his own reputation, of increasing his glory, if that's what he's doing, 
then, then it would seem like not forgiving us is the better option. You have to understand God's holiness to... So the question is this, isn't it a contradiction of God's justice to just let us off the hook? Isn't that a contradiction? Um, and, and, and the answer to that, it, it, as I've worded that question, is yes, it would be a contradiction if he just let us off the hook, if he just swept sin under the rug. The answer to this uh, comes from a very important paragraph in Romans chapter 3, specifically verses 21 through 26. I'm not going to read this passage today, but this passage gives to us the answer to this dilemma that we're in here. Okay, here's, here's, here's the situation. God's reputation is at stake because until Christ came, He's just handing out forgiveness left and right. Right? And you're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. And there is a very clear accusation that is kind of being raised in the back of some minds of people who know God's justice. And the accusation is, you're being inconsistent with your justice, God. You can't just do that. You can't just let people out. You can't just forgive people like that and remain holy. Romans 3, 21 through 26, addresses that seeming paradox, okay? It addresses this problem. And the answer to this problem is that God's name is vindicated when Jesus comes on the scene. His reputation is saved. His name is honored. Because he doesn't just dismiss the sin and the consequences that come with it. He actually fulfills his justice and his wrath and his holiness and his anger on sin by still pouring it out, but just redirecting it away from us and onto Christ. And Christ now takes the full force of the wrath of God against you and I. In full. And so, what is the result of this? All of this time, we thought that God was forgiving sin arbitrarily, and now his justice was at stake, his reputation was at stake, and guess what? The name of the Lord is vindicated because of Christ. The name of the Lord is preserved. And thus, John can now say that your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. There's a lot packed into that little statement. But it's compatible because of the work that Christ has done on our behalf. And so we are encouraged to simply draw strength 
from this. I want to encourage you, little children, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> well, how can I be sure? Because it's for his namesake. Your, your sins not being forgiven actually puts his reputation at stake. And God is not going to let that happen. He is going to preserve the honor of his name. And he will preserve the honor of his name by fulfilling his word to forgive all who call on him. This is why when we have doubts of our assurance and our, and our salvation, we need to get this off of ourselves and onto the Lord. Did I say the prayer the right way? Did I, was I in the right, was it, did I say the right words? Did I do this? That's a lot of looking at self. And where is, where is John putting us for our assurance? It, it, his reputation is at stake here, okay? He's going to forgive all who call on him. End of story. So what are we supposed to do? Draw strength from the work of grace that the Lord has already accomplished in your life. And so John starts off here by looking at this group of little children. And now he goes on to address some other groups. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. This is to say that the the fathers, those who have known the Lord for a long time, those who have known him, Christ, who's from the beginning. This is to say that these people have a long experience of continued fellowship with the Lord. I'm writing to you fathers because you've been walking with Christ for many, many years. Look to that as a source of strength. Look to all of those years. You think the Lord is going to Abandon you now. Do you remember in our introductory message to 1 John what we said? Um, kind of the, the, the theme of the letter was. We kind of said, we said that there were three things. And there were three verses specifically where John brought this out. But he was writing for the purpose of increasing joy. Fullness of joy. To, to give us fullness of joy. He was writing so that we would be holy. We would stop sinning. And he was writing for our assurance. He's writing so that we may know that we're in the Lord. And so what is John doing? By reminding the fathers that they have walked with the Lord for a very long season, he's increasing all of these things. He's accomplishing the goal that he set out to accomplish. I've walked with the Lord for these many years, and he's never abandoned me. What does that do? It increases your joy, right? Increases your holiness. I don't want want to disappoint the Lord. I love the Lord. I love his word. Increases your assurance. He's been with me this long. He's continued to give grace. He will continue to do this. And so, again, from another angle, the theme of this passage is reiterated. We're drawing strength from this. We're drawing strength from this. All of these are are past things the Lord has done. He then transitions to young men. He says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. These individuals have strength and vigor. They've resisted temptation. They have done this not in their own strength 
And we know that this is not accomplished in their own strength because Paul says what? By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Let me add the next statement. It wasn't me, but it was the grace of God that is in me. He's, he's saying, I, I can't even take credit for my perseverance. I can't even take credit for what I've been doing. And so we understand that the young men are, are doing this and have done this. They have overcome the evil one by God's grace. This is the devil, of course. And we understand that this is uh, the mark of a young man is his strength. He's drawing present strength from this reminder. And we're going to see more on this in a minute with the young men. But in the meantime, look at the last line of verse 13. He says, I write to you children because you know the father. Now you may be wondering at this moment. Didn't we just... Go over this. The answer is yes. Uh, but you may remember that we also talked about in our introductory message to First John. John, this has frustrated some commentators because it's not easy to just make a simple outline of First John. Okay, He doesn't address a topic and then move on to the next topic. He kind of just goes in this big spiral throughout the whole book. And every time that you think he's done with a topic, he kind of comes all the way around and he hits on that topic again. And uh, should this be point A or point B or sub-point this? Or, and it's like, just forget it. Just, just forget it. This, this is what he's doing. And, and he comes back and he's being repetitive. In fact, he's, he's being so repetitive in this specific passage that this has caused some to suggest that this must be some kind of a a scribal error or a mistake. Um, And there's actually no reason to believe that at all. There's no contextual evidence. There's no um, different um, manuscripts here. Um, This is what John wrote. And he wrote this uh, for the sake of repetition. Um. Anyone here in this room who has children knows why you need repetition, okay? Um, Don't touch that, okay? It's not enough, okay? Don't, 85, how many times do I have to say, don't touch this, okay? And... So we're like, you already said this, John. And he's like, I know. I know I said this. But I'm repeating this. So you can get it through your thick skulls, right? And that's, and we, that's how we are. We forget. Um, and so he kind of comes back here. And he talks about children again. He says, I'm writing to you because you know the Father. Again, simple truth here for them to cling on to. Um, He affirms basic truths. Verse 14, he repeats the line about fathers. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Outside of the change in the verb tense, 
This is the only statement of the three that's perfectly identical. The other two change a little bit. Um, but this is exactly identical. I, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him, from the, who, him who's from the beginning. I write to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. Um, and so he just reiterates this for them. Then he comes back to the young men again. But this one he does modify a bit more than the others. And he says, I write to you young men because you're strong. That's new. And the word of God abides in you. That's also new. And you've overcome the evil one. That was the repetition. These young men are strong because they have overcome their passions and their desires. Okay. How else do we overcome the evil one? The young men are not subject to fleeting temptations. They have done battle with their lust. They've done battle with their laziness, their slothfulness. They've done battle with their folly, their foolishness. And they've won. Again, not in their own strength, but because of Christ. Now, the means to this end is the word. We see this here. The word of God abides in you. On this uh, verse, Thomas Manton, the Puritan, says this. The door is barred upon Satan, and he cannot find such an easy entrance when the word is hid in our hearts and made use of pertinently. Oh, it is a great advantage when we have the word not only in us, or not only by us, but in us, engrafted in the heart. When it is present with us, we are more able to resist the assaults of Satan. We have got to be in the word. We have got to be in the word. This strength that these young men have comes from the Lord and is delivered through the means of Scripture. All right, so where do we go from here? Overarching theme. Draw strength from the work of grace that the Lord has already accomplished in your life. Maybe that's a works of God journal. I don't know. Sometimes we can be plagued with doubts. We can be plagued with a lack of assurance. We can say, my sins are too great for the Lord to forgive me. And sometimes we simply need someone to grab our head, look us in the eye, and simply say, calm down, you're in the boat. You may have fallen down, but you've fallen down inside of the boat. You're in Christ. You're not out there with all the waves. I know the boat's rocking back and forth, and I know you're seasick, and I know you've fallen down, and, and, and you were knocked unconscious for a little while, and I understand that you've been plagued this way and plagued that way, but take heart, you're in the boat. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. You've been walking with the Lord, and you've seen him work in all of these ways. And look at where you overcame that temptation by his grace. Look at all these markers of divine grace stamped everywhere. He will finish what he started. He's not going to give up. 
Draw strength from that. Go to that well when you're discouraged. John is saying this. Do you want assurance that God is continuing to work in your life? Then look at all that he's already done in the past. Now, where do we draw this assurance from? Well, the passage gives to us. Forgiven sins, right? Little children, your sins are forgiven. Your walk with the Lord. Look at how, look at this season of life that you've been walking with the Lord. Your overcoming of temptation and sin. You've overcome the evil one. Your strength. The indwelling word in you. So take heart, little children. Take heart. Now, if you have no evidence at all that the Lord has ever done anything in your life, then you would probably be among the group of people that John is saying If you hate your brother, you're not in the truth. And what is my encouragement to you? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and come join our family. Come join these brothers and sisters in the Lord. I want to give to us three applications. And application number one has three subpoints. Number one is this draw strength from the work of grace that the Lord has already accomplished in your life, as I've said a bunch of times today, by number one or A, meditating on the forgiveness of your sins. John has given this to us to be an encouragement to us. Your sins are forgiven. Draw strength from that. Okay? B, by remembering your walk with the Lord. And C, rehearsing past victories over sin and temptation. The Lord helped me to overcome this temptation. I don't know how. Because if it was all to me, I would have just indulged more and more and more. And yet the Lord pulled me out of this. That's application number one. Number two. If you cannot identify any past grace in your life, then look to Christ through repentance and faith for salvation. If you're an unbeliever here today, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I would be happy to point you to him after the service today. And then number three, uh, I'm, I like mixed a bunch of things in here, okay? The theme of First John, this three points of joy, holiness, and assurance, okay? I just threw it all here in one big pot, okay? If you can identify God's grace at work in your life, take heart in this assurance of your salvation, And be strengthened to continue walking in joy, holiness, and assurance. Return to the trenches with renewed strength from the Lord. You're in the boat. You know Christ. He's worked in your life. I can identify this. 
I can see the grace. I'm going to get up and keep going because he's called me to this, because I love him, because he increased my joy. He increased my assurance. He is sufficient. Thank you, God, for your continued faithfulness to your children. I would pray that our assurance of our faith would line up with the truth. This is a difficult passage to preach through because of the, the, the ditches that are easy to, to fall into of giving false assurance to those who are outside of Christ or robbing assurance from those who are in Christ. I just pray that our, um, our assurance would correspond to truth, meaning that those who are in Christ, you would give them grace and give them uh, just a quiet, uh, frame of mind and a peace that, as you say in your word, passes all understanding. That if there are any who walked in today who are true believers in Christ and they are plagued by doubts, that you would just give them great assurance from this passage today. I also pray that if there be any today who who's outside of Christ, that you would not give them Um, a false assurance, but that you would rob any kind of assurance from them. Help them to have a clear understanding of their position in regard to you and that they would cry out today in repentance and faith so that they might believe and then have the assurance that you do give to us. We thank you for the way that you have given to us your word in a way that is comforting to those who are downcast and discouraged. You've penned this portion of Scripture through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in a way that is gentle and patient and kind with us and our weaknesses. And so continue to work in that way in our hearts. Help us to find strength from you in Christ's name. Amen.